A note to our listeners, the following episode contains a true crime story. While this is a lighthearted show, we understand that the material we discuss is sensitive and quite frankly heartbreaking. We want to acknowledge that and make sure everyone understands that there are real victims behind these stories and people whose lives have been tragically affected by acts of violence. Thank you for listening. Welcome to episode two of our October month. Huzzah. It's spooky season. Yes, it is. And we're currently under a blanket. Why are we under a blanket? Please tell the audience. It's for sound quality. We are experimenting to find what gives the best sound quality. Previously on Scary Godmothers, we tried recording from our mother's closet. Didn't work. Now we're trying. Actually, I don't know if it worked. I think it was fine. And now. But I'm pretty sure it gave me like like the dust. The, it gave me the dust. <laughs> the dust in there gave me, like, an allergic reaction. Sure, it was the dust in there because nothing happened to me. There were no mites or Because you're not there. sensitive. Clearly, I'm sensitive. You are sensitive. So we tried the closet, and then we're trying a blanket. And next episode, I'm going to make her get underneath her work table, and I'm going to put a blanket over us. I'm going to just build us a fort. <laughs> Coming to you live from From fort. our fort because we're big girls. <laughs> exactly. Do you feel like a big girl? No. Well, say yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, I have a question for you, big girl. Okay. Did you eat today? I did. That's good. Because now that we're on the topic of eating, I got to tell you guys a very harrowing story that I heard today while in the in the Uber. I had nothing to do in the Uber, so I was just listening to the radio. And then the story came on and it is so just, are you ready? I'm ready. There is a man. Okay. And he likes to eat at restaurants. Okay. Nice restaurants. All right. And before he pays, you know what he does? He fakes having heart attacks. And he's done this, I believe, what was it, 22 times? And it got so bad. Like, he faked having a heart attack before the bill would come. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know if he, they had, like, a, a a partner or something, but the restaurant would obviously be like, we have to get this man to the hospital right away. Mm-hmm. And so they usher him out before he gets to pay, right? He's done this so many times that restaurants have started to, like, I don't know where this happened, but they started to share his photo around so because they're like, like a, uh, they've banned him. Mm-hmm. Now people know that he he's the fucking man who. But yeah. don't they call like an ambulance? No, I think that's why he was able to get away with it. Is because if he has someone that's like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna I'll, take, I'll him, take to him, the, him to yes, the right now immediately. Okay. Maybe he's like, I don't want to pay the ambulance price or whatever. But he always has like like expensive food or like like drinks like expensive like whiskey or something and then right before he has to pay he just like i have a heart attack and then i don't think that's what people I, having I, heart attacks thank sound god like. i've never had a heart attack before so i have no frame of reference um did you guys know that some period cramps are worse than heart attacks the more you know anyway that's what i had heard the harrowing tale i had heard and i wanted to share with you because technically i heard that and i went oh my god this is true crime it's a crime and it's true and lo and behold, who do I know that has a true crime podcast? We do. We do. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, I have to Share more. This. I have to warn people so they know about this man and his antics and or potentially his partner too. Start having pretend heart attacks at restaurants and eat expensive food. Let's see with the, the way the economy's going. Maybe no, no. Okay, but seriously, if you get away with it, let us know. Yeah, let us know, and then we'll talk about you. We'll cover you next. Yeah, you could be a tale. And we'd be like, oh, my gosh, this person knows what they're doing. And they did it because of us. How We would be honored. Wait, like, no, bitch, that's wrong. We're supposed to be telling people not to commit true crimes. I mean, don't commit, like, murder or anything. But this is just, like, it's light. It's light. It's <laughs> white-collar crime. I guess, yeah. It's, it's like, crime light. It's like fraud. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if we should be saying on air that we condone we fraud. We do not condone fraud. We do not condone fraud. But if you do commit some, you got to let us know about the details or like. So we can do an episode. So we can do an episode (laughs) on you. We're always looking for content. Speaking of content, what are we trying today? I literally thought that you would never ask. So today what we are trying is Trader Joe's Bamba Puffed Peanut and Corn Snacks. And the the reason that I got these is because they're corn snacks. And Dill had sent me a very frantic message when I was outsourcing snacks. She said, I it's the month of October, and you know what that means. I need corn-based snacks. Okay, I did not word it like that. I just said my episodes will be in Iowa. And Iowa is known for corn, so you should get corn-based snacks. You were urgent about that I was urgent, but it didn't... 
insistent about the corn. And so I did it for you. Thank and you. And so these puffed peanut and corn snacks um, are dipped in dark chocolate. So let's try it. What are your opinions? Um, I like it. I would like it more if it was milk chocolate, just because I'm not a big fan of dark chocolate. Mm -hmm. But I do like it. I like the texture. I like the sweetness. I like it all. I think it's fine, but I can't get over the fact that it tastes like a, a cheese puff. Not like a Cheeto. It tastes like a cheese puff, an off-brand cheese puff that's been stripped of cheese, like somebody like sucked it off and then dipped it in hot, dark chocolate, hot dark chocolate. <laughs> hot dark chocolate. And so I don't know if I can taste, like, I don't know if I can just eat this by myself. It's not a snacky snack. It's just, I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly. I just, I didn't love it, okay? Okay, before you get too worked up about the corn, let's talk about who we came here to talk about, Michelle. On December 19, 1979, Michelle Martinko was having an average day. She had school that day, a choir banquet to attend later in the evening, and then afterwards she decided she would swing by the mall to pick up a winter coat before going home. But by the time the next morning rolled around, it would be clear that the 18-year-old Michelle would not make it home. Her case would actually be cold for decades until advancements in forensic technology were made. Jeez. To understand this case, though, we have to start at the very beginning. So, on October 6, 1961, Michelle Marie Martinko was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to parents Albert and Janet. Cedar Rapids is small. How small are we talking? So, in 1970, it was about 11,000 people. That's not even enough to fill our college campus. Nope. And now it's like 137,000 people, so it's not really that big. Well, that would still – now that would overcrowd our college campus. So they've but, definitely grown But in 11. comparison to, like, other areas and other oh, cities, yeah. it's, like, pretty small. And Iowa in general is tiny. very, very small. But just because it was small doesn't mean it wasn't a great community to raise their kids in. The Martinkos already had an older daughter, Janelle, but Michelle was their miracle child. It's sweet that their names sound alike because the mom's name is Janet, her older sister's name is Janelle, and her name is Michelle. Janet, yeah. Janelle, Michelle. It's it's a very cute family. Really? Just very cute and just loving and supportive. And Janet learned that she was pregnant with Michelle. The Martinko family was over the moon. Oh, that's so sweet. Janet was 44 when Michelle was born. Mm-hmm. So Michelle really grew up, like I said, with love and support. She was adored by her parents, really spoiled by her older sister. As a little girl, Michelle was the flower girl at her sister Janelle's wedding to her now husband, John. That's so sweet. And her family, when you like hear the, the interviews and just see all of these articles and everything, they kind of radiate this energy that you want in a family they like to, so wholesome they they are so wholesome so middle america mm -hmm. just people who are going to be there for you like give you advice take you on and like i said um when janelle married john even john who's like a newcomer to this family like he talks about michelle as his own little sister they're a very like close-knit unit they are so close-knit and michelle sort of is this very bright wholesome kind vibe like mm -hmm. she's just a vibe goes to show you the kind of person michelle was because not everything in her life was hunky-dory i mean literally no one's life is perfect when michelle was 12 she was diagnosed with scoliosis and had to wear a back brace from her neck to her hips which could not have been easy and sounds hella painful yes it does and i've i have scoliosis and i got my diagnosis when i was a teenager but mine's like, you know, like, you know, in the upper back, upper neck area. And it's just off slightly and it's painful. You've got an S curve too. I've you. got an S curve. Um, I have curves, just not where I want them. <laughs> but it's, again, not enough to wear a back brace or anything. So but this had to be bad. But this was probably really bad and really painful. And um, mine has to be managed through physical therapy. So I can't even imagine what Michelle at 12 years old was going through. Wow. And so that was really a rough patch for her, struggling with her diagnosis, wearing the back brace. And again, it's at such a crucial age. Like, that's the age you want to blend in and not be different. And wearing a back brace can can make you different and make you stand out. And also, she's a child. So, you know, at 12, you're supposed to be running around and playing and doing all that stuff. So having, you know, that problem with her back must have, like... Yeah, it's, it's like a, it's a rough patch mm -hmm. just that she was going through. But things do get better for Michelle and the support of a very loving back brace. Okay. So a couple of years later, you know, Michelle goes on to have like a full teen movie montage glow up. <gasps> really? Yeah. 
So she said bye to the brace and she started her uh, styling herself in like the latest trends of the 70s um, and like fixed her. She has beautiful blonde hair, like beautiful blonde hair. And so she started uh, fixing her hair in a very Farrah Fawcett way. Who's that? Let me show you. Oh, I see it. The hair is the same. Her hair is like really like. Sil- it looks silky and healthy, and that shit definitely took, like, curlers, curlers to put in. And wow. Just, and looking at that picture, I mean, she is gorgeous. She looks she's, so youthful. And she, I mean, she's 18. Yeah, but and I mean, she's also, I did not look like that at 18. And she's also very, like, 70s Americana style. Yeah. Like, it's She looks very, like that, like, that bitch, yeah, you know? Like, oh, wow. And just look at her smile. Like, just, I know. she's so pretty. And, and just, her eyes are brown? Yeah. Wow. So, like I said, she was really coming into her own at this time. By the time Michelle got to Cedar Rapids Kennedy High School, she excelled in her studies. She made the twirling squad as a sophomore, which news articles kept telling me it's, like, unheard of to make wow. this twirling squad. So she squad. must have been talented. Yeah, she's talented. That, that back brace must have done wonders because then she was, like, moving around twirling stuff. Yep. She sang in the Kennedy's Women's Choir and the Concert Choir. She was in the theater. Aw, um, woman after my own heart. She st- and she started dating and she started um, working at Westdale Mall. And by the time she was a senior in high school, she decided she wanted to study interior design at Iowa State University. She had it all figured out. Like, and just not only just having everything figured out and just excelling in her studies and just kind of doing all of that stuff, everyone, and I do mean everyone from her um, former classmates to her parents to her, like, sister to everybody would describe Michelle as a kind soul. Like, Having gone through all those medical issues, she looked out for people, and she wanted to spread kindness. Oh, this is going to break my heart, isn't it? And I think that's why a case like this just hits differently, because, Mm -hmm. like, had she been allowed to live her life, she could have just blossomed into this good human being. Like, Like, what other stuff could she have done? Yeah, and and it's just not, like, like major stuff. Like, I think a lot of times... People are like, oh, they could have cured. They're going to cure cancer. But no, no it's about like. She they could have been a mom. They could have been. a Yeah, they could have explored their life, made mistakes, fallen in love, been there for their family, you know, all that stuff. But it's just it's because some asshole decides to. That they want to be an asshole. Yeah. And, and does this. All right. So let's go back to the dreaded day. December okay. 19, 1979. Michelle got all dressed up to attend the banquet for the Kennedy Concert Choir at the Sheraton Hotel. She went all out. She was wearing her black jersey dress with her black scarf, Ah. her um, tights, heels, and a waist-length white and brown rabbit fur jacket with a little brown leather purse. Oh, so she is chic. She is very chic. The banquet was normal by all accounts. There was small talk, high school kids gossiping, food... But by 7 p.m., it was coming to an end. The way you said that made it sound like they were gossiping about the food. You know, you went high school, small talk, kids gossip, food. (laughs) There's food there. Like, Mm -hmm. it's banquet food. So, like I said, by 7 p.m., it was really coming to an end. Michelle had told her mom, Janet, that she had planned to drive over to Westdale Mall and grab herself the winter coat that her mom had put on layaway for Christmas. Oh, wow. Initially, she had asked her friend and fellow twirler, Jane Hansen, to go with her, but Jane declined, saying she had homework to do. Michelle then asked another friend to go with her, who had initially said yes during the banquet, but then said no, which is what happens, really. Nevertheless, she decided to go the mall alone, armed with $180. That's like a million dollars back in 70s money, dude. That is quite a conversion rate, but I don't think that's true. Now, after arriving at Westdale Mall, Michelle was spotted by several people. She kind of spent her time hopping from store to store, talking to friends and acquaintances. She worked there, so she knew a lot of people. And like I said, Cedar Rapids is a very small, close-knit community. And she was well-liked. Yeah, she was well-liked. So, like, she knew a lot of people. She also, at that time, decided to change her mind about the coat. She doesn't – she didn't want it anymore. Tracy Price, a friend and classmate of Michelle's, would even bump into her and tell her not to carry, like, cash out in the open. 
And she even told Tracy that she was feeling very nervous that someone was watching her. Okay, that's the the first red flag. Something's up. Mm-hmm. Another friend and classmate, Kurt Thomas, would actually spend his entire break with Michelle, just walking around the mall with her. Kurt recalls that he actually walked past a girl he liked on his walk with Michelle, and it hit him that his crush would never go out with him because he was walking with Michelle, and she was described as stunning, like, by everyone. So she was just a head-turner. Oh, yeah. I see. He was like, whoa, wait, my friend is really attractive, but my crush, man. (laughs) Yeah, so he was like, I would never have a chance with her, like, if I keep walking around with Michelle. (laughs) So... Kurt Thomas, unfortunately, would be the last person to see Michelle. Oh, dear. As soon as Kurt's break wraps up, he walks Michelle to an exit and Michelle is presumably on her way home. However, that is not the case. Back at the Martinko home, Janet and Albert start getting increasingly worried that Michelle is not home. Oh, I hate stories like this. They start calling around to her friends, asking if anyone has seen Michelle, and even call the police. But of course, the police turn them down, saying they cannot be looking out for every teenager that's out out late a couple of hours. You know, if it just it baffles me that people can give that kind of response. I understand to some level that they're like, oh, you know, teenagers will be teenagers. Sure. But if that teenager does not have like a pre-existing, you know, behavior of staying out and Mm -hmm. like being unreliable, fucking listen to the parents. I also think it's the job of the police. I get it managing resources and, Mm -hmm. and time and all of that. But that's what you're there for. But that's what, yeah, that's what you're there for. So that pisses me off. Mm hmm. Now, it is around 2.30 a.m. Janet calls Jane Hansen, Michelle's friend and fellow twirler. And after confirming with Jane that she's not seen Michelle, the police are called again this time. This time they listen and they send Officer Jim Kincaid to search the mall, which is the last place Michelle was seen. And it's been a couple hours. It's been a hot minute, it's actually. It's been a hot minute because now it's 4 a.m. and the Martinko's fa- Martinko family's worst nightmare would be confirmed. Oh, no. Officer Kincaid locates the family's 1972 Tan Buick Electra in the northeast corner of the mall. Because the windows are frosted over, remember, it is December in Mm -hmm. Iowa. The officer decides to try the back door and kind of peers in, like opens the back door, peers in, and sees a girl slumped over. Oh. Initially, he thinks maybe it's just like an intoxicated person. So he goes around to the passenger side to see more. And quickly realizes that the young girl, later ID'd to be Michelle, was deceased. The CRPD, which is the Cedar Rapids Police Department, would break the news to Michelle's parents who had come down to ID the body. It was, in fact, Michelle. Janet would call Janelle and her husband John to come home as she just identified, quote, bloody, torn, broken body of her beautiful daughter. Oh, wow. My heart just completely, just in half. Jeez. Can you, I mean losing a child in any way but that quote like oh i want to cry because that horrifying what michelle went through was horrifying like i said michelle was found lying on her back slumped over the passenger seat of the buick and just kind of like leaning against the car door there was a lot of blood over the coat her dress inside the car indicating a very frenzied attack So she didn't get the coat that she originally wanted. No, this is just her rabbit coat that she was wearing. But there was a lot lot of blood. blood. The autopsy would later reveal that Michelle had been stabbed 21 times in the face, neck, and chest. Oh, someone was mad. This was personal. Yep. According to the ME, her heart was still pumping when the attacker inflicted (gasps) a stab into her aorta. Oh, my God. Michelle fought Her attacker, though, she fought hard because her hands were covered in deep defensive wounds. She was fighting. She was fighting. Based on, like you said, based on the location and number of stab wounds, officers described the the crime as, quote, personal in nature. Now, no murder weapon was found, but according to the ME, it was a sharp pointed weapon. To be able to inflict that kind of damage Mm -hmm. crpd investigators concluded that the murder took place inside the car because there was no blood outside the car or on the pavement but the car inside was very bloody was this michelle's car this was the family car okay there's also no fingerprints anywhere but the there were glove prints found and the glove prints seem to match dishwashing gloves from the 70s. So somebody fucking... It would be one thing if the killer had, like, like mittens because it's cold, you know? Or, like, you know? Yeah. 
like winter gloves, but dishwashing gloves. It's just people were saying that psycho. it's just they were everywhere. Like oh. these are not like you know how like dishwashing gloves are so like you can get them common, anywhere. Yeah. So common. So it's not like a there's not a distinct thing that they could have matched it to. Yeah. Now, but like, that person had to have dishwashing gloves out and about by a fucking mall. Now, like I said, the attack was very personal in nature with 21 stab wounds. Like, you know, it would, it would have, have to be. be. But what was the motive, really? Initially, the cops thought robbery, but nothing was stolen, not even the cash Michelle had on her. Maybe she was just a young, pretty girl. The next motive was sexual assault, but there were no signs found. Oh, my gosh. Now, this is 1979, so the cops had limited stuff to work with in terms of leads. They tested the blood for all they could test for at that time was blood type. And then they started honing in on the people, especially the men in Michelle's life. They obviously started with Kurt Thomas, the last person to see Michelle. Poor Kurt was interrogated for hours and he didn't even know what the interrogation was about. He didn't know? So he recalls the cops told him, like once the cops told him Michelle was murdered, he went into complete shock. But Kurt was ruled out because his store manager alibied him and he came back from his break at 9.30 and stayed till the shop closed at 10. So they pulled Kurt aside, started to interrogate him. And Kurt was like, I have no idea what you guys yes. are on about. And then they told him? Yeah, so basically what, what happened with Kurt was they pulled him out of class and they were like, like, do you know Michelle? Like, you were last seen with her. Where is she? Like, what did you do? And all of this. And he's like, I don't know why they're asking me this question. And then after hours, they would tell him, hey, after hours mm -hmm, that Michelle was unfortunately murdered and you are a suspect. And that's when he went into complete shock. There's two things I have to say about this. The way they told him his friend was murdered. And then, then obviously comes like, you're a suspect. But the like, can you, I can't even imagine finding out that a friend of mine was, I don't, I don't think that they know that she was he doesn't know that she was brutalized. No, I think they were, he just... He's just like, told. well, I mean, being told she was murdered mm -hmm. is enough to send anyone into, you know, just freak State out of mode. Shock. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but they it's, were, the, it's the 70s. No, so. no bedside manner or anything whatsoever. The amount of therapy poor Kurt needed, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. The next person that the detectives talked to was Michelle's ex-boyfriend, Mike. Michelle was Mike's first girlfriend and he was pretty serious about her. But Mike was one year one year ahead of Michelle, and so the relationship ended when he went to college. Now, he was questioned, but at the time of the murder, he was more than 100 miles away at college, so he was never really a serious suspect. I mean, that's a pretty good fucking alibi if you're 100 miles yep. away. But the most serious suspect was Michelle's recent ex-boyfriend, Andy Sedell. Michelle and Andy had met at a roller skating rink when she was 15 and he was 16. Because that's just the type of places you could meet people, huh? In, yeah, in the 70s. In the 70s. He was this like really suave, flashy guy. He had a sports car and Michelle fell for him. Mm -hmm. I'm going to show you a picture of Andy. Okay. Okay. I have several things to say right now. I have his bangs. I got a haircut recently, and I got bangs that are very similar to Andy's. Michelle looks gorgeous in this photo. It looks like a prom photo. Yeah, I think it's like homecoming or prom, maybe. It's a dance or something. She looks gorgeous. And then there's Andy. That Okay, I just need to say this. I've seen that stash before. Um, that very 70s straight stash before. I've seen it, and it was on the face of my ex-boyfriend on our first date. That mustache was nowhere to be found on his Hinge profile, but by God, it was on his face when we had met. So I've seen this stash before. Pro tip to the dudes. I can't speak for every lady, but a lot of the ladies I know, the 70s stash. I know Chris Evans thinks he can rock it. No one can rock that stash. Shave. But Andy could. It was the 70s. It was a different time. It was a different time. So Andy and Michelle actually ended up dating for two years. Oh, okay. But Michelle ended things because she wasn't really ready to be in a committed relationship. And Andy did not take the breakup well. Oh, Andy started becoming a little bit controlling. A little bit? So he'd really want to keep tabs on Michelle even after they broke it, broke up. He would want to know what she was doing, who she was dating, and why. Okay, excuse you? And in fact, he and his friend had bumped into Michelle at the Westdale Mall at 10... I'm sorry, at 
8.30 p.m. Oh, okay. That's on a little, December uh, 19th. That's a little coincidental. When asked by the CRPD detectives what he was doing there, he said he was buying Michelle a present for Christmas. A girl he was broken up with. He was getting her a present. And did they ever figure out if they were friendly? Or was he just like, I'm getting her a present? Later on, Andy would say that they actually parted on good terms and they were friendly. But at this time, everyone in her life is saying that he was like trying to keep tabs on her, did not like her going out with other people. And his behavior kind of demonstrates that as well later on. Now, Janet, Michelle's mom, actually had even called Andy at 3.30 a.m. on the day her daughter went missing to ask if she was with him. Andy and his mom would even go down to search for her, but they could not locate her. So they just came back. I understand that it's a fucking small town, so they probably only have one mall. So, you know, you can run into people at the mall in the 70s. But just like the timeline of everything makes it highly suspect. Gail Dawson, Michelle's best friend, would actually recall that Andy's behavior was just so bizarre that everyone, including the police, were considering him as a suspect. I'm considering him as a suspect. During the funeral, Gail says Andy was almost in the casket. Oh my gosh. Quoting, this is quoting Gail. He was so emotional. He had his arms around her. He was just sobbing. He said to me... I have to know who she loved when she died. Did she love me or did she love Mike? Who did she love when she died? End quote. Motherfucker, she was brutally brutally murdered. murdered. And you're making it about you? Oh my God, I'm glad I made fun of his mustache. And like I said, most of the community, including Michelle's family, like were convinced of his guilt. And it was really, everyone was like, the time is ticking when it comes out that Andy did this. Mm -hmm. Andy's like, we know that he did it. It's just just, just a matter of when when the evidence like catches up, I guess. Andy's story, however, never changed. And in 1979, there were no credible links tying him to the crime scene. In fact, the CRPD was struggling to find any leads anywhere. In June of 1980, they did release a police sketch of a suspect, and they got this sketch from two supposed witnesses who had undergone a a hypnosis to recall their memories. Were these witnesses ever talked about in the sources you were looking at? Uh, No, not who they were. They're just random people. Well, they never Mm -hmm. never said who the witnesses were, but there there is this police sketch that went out, and I'm going to show you. But I will say that hypnosis is not a credible way to recall memories. Especially not for a court of law. Because memories are very like, what is that, valuable? Valuable. No, malleable. Sorry, malleable. Yes. Um. So like hypnosis is I think not you, a good way to I think recall. you fucked up fallacy and malleable. Fallible. They're malleable and it's not a good way to recall memories. Mm-hmm. But let me show you the sketch. What the fuck is that? It's what the fuck is that? It's so basic when it comes to police sketches. This like, is an awful sketch, dude. It is an awful sketch, but it is like the eighties now. So, all it's the eighties. It's nineteen eighty now, so it's one oh, year later. Oh wow, dude! What I get the hair. So it is a this sketch is of a white man in his late teens or early twenties, around six foot tall. 165 to 175 pounds with dark curly hair. Now, this sketch, they released it to the public and it does bring the CRPD tips, but none of them are useful because this sketch is so generic. You could literally be describing anybody. And with that, that haircut might be unique nowadays, but everybody had that haircut back in the 80s. That police sketch was one of the reasons the investigation would go completely cold. First of all, there were no leads, but also the sketch didn't help anybody. Albert Martinko would file a lawsuit against the owners and operators of Westdale Mall, arguing that they failed to provide reasonable security the night his daughter was killed. As he should. The case was actually taken all the way to the Iowa Supreme Court, but the justices ruled in favor of the mall. Oh, fuck the mall. The 80s? Fuck big malls. Fuck big mall. The 80s had turned into the 90s, and Albert died in 1995, and Janet soon followed in 1998. Oh, how old were they? I don't actually know. We calculated it. We figured it out. We used deductive reasoning. They were around 81 or in their 80s in their 80s probably but they never got to see justice for their daughter however the crpd did not give up and neither did the community oh her poor sister's all alone yeah so she lost her immediate family but she does have john she does have john john and janelle will continue this fight 
to get justice for Michelle. I hope they lit a fire under everyone's ass. Fast forward to 2006. Investigator Doug Larison takes over the case and has another look at the evidence. Like I've said many times, Cedar Rapids and Iowa are pretty small. Everyone knows everyone. Doug Larison actually went to high school with Michelle. Wait, in the same class? Yep. He wasn't close to her, but his uh, her murder was on his mind, and he felt a responsibility to his peers to solve it. Detective Doug has now teamed up with the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations Crime Lab to extract a DNA profile from the blood samples found in the car and on the back of Michelle's dress. Because it's 2006 and they can do that now with the technology. Exactly. The DNA profile was then run through the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS. Now, CODIS is basically a program that houses DNA profiles from convicted offenders, unsolved crime scene evidence, and missing persons. So he just, they uploaded it and they tried to compare it to see if they could get any hits. Unfortunately, no hits were found. And CODIS, you said they were only just like criminals, uh, convicted offenders? It's convicted offenders, unsolved crime scene evidence, and missing persons. But what about like... They, they can't take the DNA. Obviously, they had DNA from Michelle, and then they used it against CODIS. They didn't get a match. No. And then I guess they didn't. What I'm thinking is like, you know, everyday people, can they match them against everyday people? But I guess they can't. Well, the DNA profile was enough to start eliminating people in Michelle's circle. Okay. So um, especially the men, because the DNA belonged to a male suspect. So Andy... Kurt, Tracy, and many others were eliminated as suspects. Okay, so Andy was out. Andy was cleared after 25 years of being the suspect. Like, an entire community, um, including Janelle and John, were just so shocked that he was cleared. I guess, I mean, it's not a crime to be a controlling controlling person, I guess. No, but I also think that maybe he was a teenager and now yeah, he, he knows was a better. Teenager, so. yeah. But as more people were cleared, the question of who did the DNA belong to became more perplexing. The case would actually go on to sit on ice for another decade before being handed off Sir Matt Denlinger. Remember when I said this place was small? Matt Denlinger is actually the son of the original officer, Harvey Denlinger, who was on the case. Okay. In, ni- in the in the seventies, you know, it's it's admirable that not only you know the the people the officers were invested in this case, but then their their children are also. So when Matt became a cop, and he, then he was handed this case. For him, it was very personal. He was five when his father was put on the case, and he actually grew up watching the local news segment that they had on Michelle. Every year on December 19th. So he was determined to solve it. I'm rooting for Matt. You should always root for Matt. In 2015, Matt employs the same strategy Mm -hmm. as Doug. And he wants to make, basically, he's like, I want to make a list and I want to just start swabbing people and comparing the DNA of the suspect and use the process of of elimination. Now, Cedar Rapids is small, but it's not that small. I mean, when you have to take like a gargantuan undertaking like this, it's going to be, He did eliminate 125 additional people. So he did do that. But Matt's next lead would actually come from a Virginia-based nanotechnology lab called Parabon Nanolabs. Okay, that's a bit far away. Uh, Yes. Parabon, because I'm not going to keep saying Parabon Nanolabs over and over again. You just did? Okay, Parabon, had this DNA analysis service called Snapshot. It's trademarked. (laughs) In case you were planning on coming up with a DNA analysis service, you just can't call it Snapshot. Call it something else. Snapchat is also taken. So they would take a DNA sample and generate the phenotype of the DNA sample. Oh. So with the DNA sample given, they can predict the ancestry, pigmentation, hair color, and the eye color of of that DNA sample with a certain degree of confidence. That's insane. So it's probability, but it's like how much confident they are in their sample. That's right? insane. Now you may be thinking what Dennis Murphy from Dateline was thinking on this episode, on the on the episode covering Michelle's case. He goes, quote, excuse me if I sound a little skeptical. That sounds like voodoo science fiction, end quote. <laughs> what? But Dennis, this is science, and honestly, this technology and more, like, expansion on this technology is the future. Yeah, I didn't know they fucking could do this. This is amazing. I didn't know either. So what was science fiction is now actually becoming very, very true. In fact, the U.S. Department of Defense contributed to 
uh, about $2 million to help develop Parabon's snapshot DNA phenotyping service. Yeah, because the Department of Defense could use something like that. In Michelle's case, the snapshot that formed from the suspect DNA was very different from the 1980 police sketch. Oh, you don't say. Now I'm going to show you the sketch. This sketch is one of a white male with blonde hair and blue eyes. And like I said, you can only tell the phenotype um, from a DNA sample, but things like age, weight, or how someone does their hair cannot be predicted from DNA. Parabon so then sent a couple of images, all with varying ages and hairstyles, and the CRPD would go on to release these to the public. I'm going to go ahead and say what we're both thinking. This sketch is literally thousands of years more advanced, more futuristic than the one that we saw previously. That other one was not it, but this one, like, looks like a real human person. Now, like I said, the CRPD would release these to the public, and tips, again, would come pouring in, and someone was like, oh, this is this person, or this is this person, or this is this person, but no real leads are going to be formed from this sketch. Parabon, again, swoops in, offers another service. They decide to take the DNA profile that they have and use genetic genealogy to search for the relatives of the suspect. Earlier that year, the Golden State Killer, a.k.a. scum of the earth, Joseph James D'Angelo, was found due to familial DNA after 44 years of his first crime spree. Burn in hell, bitch. He can go fuck it. Go fuck it? Go fuck it. Parabon would take the suspect DNA from Michelle's case and search it in GEDmatch. GEDmatch is a free DNA comparison and analysis website for people who can upload their DNA profile and then find potential familial matches or build out their family trees. Okay, so it's useful then. Yeah, it is very useful. It's just a database of anyone and it's still up today. You can go put your DNA profile in it and see if you can, you know, find your family or build out your family trees. It's not really designed for like forensic investigators. It's for the public. But there's also nothing stopping forensic investigators. Yeah, and if you find a killer or two along the way, fuck yeah. After running the DNA through Jed Match, Matt Denlinger got the lead that he was looking for. Oh, thank God. The system found Brandy Jennings, a Washington resident who presents as a second cousin once removed from the suspect male DNA in Michelle's case. They got close. They got close, but not close enough. Mm hmm. Brandy had submitted her DNA to find her father's side of the family after her father died. She uploaded her DNA in 2009 and literally forgot about it for years. Can you imagine getting that call? You went on an innocent website one year and then you said for years later she Mm -hmm. gets this fucking call and these people are like, hey, just letting you know, you're the second cousin once removed of a killer. There you go. And could you help us? Can you help us? And Brandy said yes. Of Of course course she did. So CRPD and officer Matt Denlinger got to work right away. The police would scour through historical records, go read tombstones, get census data to create a family tree going back to four sets of great-great-grandparents. From there, CRPD would call up the family. So they had four branches of the family, right? Would call up a branch of the family, ask for DNA to help narrow down their search. Of the four sets of great-great-grandparents, they eliminated a family branch based in Ohio. They eliminated one based in Nebraska. When they got to the next family branch, they found Janice Burns, a woman living in Iowa who, based off of her DNA, turned out to be the first cousin from the suspect DNA. Okay, so now they got really close. Now they're getting really close. Now, following that family branch from Janice Burns, the suspect pool actually will narrow down to just three brothers, Donald, Kenneth, and Jerry Burns. The Burns brothers were as normal as they come. Real middle America, family men, respected people of the community style, right? Mm, As normal as they come, except one of them is a murderer. That is accurate. Donald was the older brother. He had three kids and five grandchildren. He was a manager of a lumberyard and lived in Davenport, which is one hour and a half away from Cedar Rapids. Kenneth was the middle brother. He was married with three children. He sold farm equipment and lived in Manchester, which is an hour away from Cedar Rapids. Jerry was the youngest brother. He was married, but his wife Patricia died in 2008. He o- he owned Advanced Coding Concepts, a 
powder coating business, and he lived and worked in Manchester, which again is an hour away from Cedar Rapids. The CRPD took a toothbrush from Donald's trash to test his DNA, followed Kenneth to grab his straw from lunch, and did the same to Jerry when he went to go get pizza. It's not illegal, I guess, to, you know, pick up someone else's trash? It's not illegal at all. When the crime lab comes back with the results, it is clear. Jerry Burns' DNA is a match for the suspect DNA found on Michelle's dress. Oh, wow. After almost 40 years, they had finally had their suspect and his DNA. You, oh, I'm so, oh, I'm so glad that they found him. That motherfucker probably thought he got away with it. I mean, it took 40 fucking years, but I'm glad they nailed his ass. Good detective work. Hell yeah. On December 19th, 2018. <gasps> the date. The date specifically picked by Matt Denlinger as a way to rattle Jerry, CRPD officers would go down to Jerry's business and serve him with a warrant. As they should. The warrant would let them officially collect DNA, search his office, as well as take pictures of his hands and arms. Remember that Michelle fought her attacker hard. So they were thinking that maybe um, there were cuts on his hands and arms that they could have seen. But she didn't have like a weapon to fight back with. So maybe she was just just fighting back with her, you know. But they just thought that maybe nothing is too small, I guess, Mm -hmm. during the investigation. Investigators have a small hidden camera in a coffee mug that would record the entire interview with Jerry. Right away, the officers tell Jerry that someone has tipped them off um, to him by the police sketch that they have. Not because that they have his DNA. It's just the police sketch sort of matches his description. So they they were just rattling him. They yeah. were like, bitch, we know it was you. Matt Denlinger just wanted to see what he would do. They don't want to bring the DNA uh, up right away. However, when Jerry continues to deny knowing Michelle, that's when they bring up the DNA and that that it is a confirmed match for the DNA on Michelle's dress. Oh, you want to lie, motherfucker? Boom, there's the proof. And Jerry denies and he goes on and on about, quote, testing the DNA, even when the CRPD officers tell him they did test it and it is a match. How old is he supposed to be here? Because he seems like he's fucking senile. He does not know what's going uh, on. He is in his 60s. I believe he's 64. Yeah, he has no idea what's going on. Jerry Burns was arrested on December 19th, 2018, on the charge of first-degree murder of Michelle Martinko. At 7 p.m. that night, Cedar Rapids Police Chief Wayne German stepped up to announce the arrest at a news conference. German proclaims, quote, I am here to announce that the Cedar Rapids Police Department, with the help of Lynn County Attorney's Office, has made an arrest in connection with the homicide of Michelle Martinko, Jerry Lynn Burns. The tenacity, the dedication exhibited by these investigators and officers is why we're here tonight, and we can close this case, this tragic case that's been haunting this community for 39 years. End quote. Turning over the podium to Lynn County Attorney Jerry Vander Sanden, who spoke to remind the public that this is an active case and that, quote, the defendant is presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. End quote. Oh, his blood matched. The following day, Janelle and John Stonebreaker released their own statement. Janelle and I are very pleased and grateful for the work of several generations of Cedar Rapids uniformed police and detectives bringing in Mr. Burns to justice. From the leadership on down, they never gave up, end quote. For the community, though, they are truly shocked. I mean, this case has been going on for 40 years. But Jerry Burns is a nice, approachable, upstanding citizen. The community is stunned, and many, like, refuse to believe it at all. I mean, I can't even wrap my brain around how you could brutally murder someone and then go about living your fucking life for the next 40 years like nothing happened. But the community doesn't believe that Jerry Mm -hmm. Burns did it because, again, when you are a pillar of the community, nobody wants to believe you are doing brutal things. Mm -hmm. But whether they believe it or not, an arrest has been made, but making an arrest is always the first part of getting justice. Getting through the trial is the next part. Burns was represented by Iowa City lawyer Leon Spees, and he enters a plea of not guilty. Investigators had gathered evidence from Burns' office computer, but Spees gets that evidence barred, stating that the evidence was not relevant to the case as it's on Jerry's computer decades after the murder. The evidence in question is the myriad of activities found by Jeff Holt, a CRPD investigator. The evidence of internet searches and activity involving, quote, blonde females, assault, rape, strangulation, murder, 
abuse, and rape of a deceased individual and cannibalism, end quote. So that was what it was on his fucking computer? That is what CRPD investigator Jeff Holst found. Wow. Okay. So that was all on his fucking computer after his DNA was just tied to this horrific murder. And then that, I mean, I guess, good job to you, Spees, because you're doing your job as a, what is it, a defender? Defend- defense lawyer. Defense lawyer. Yeah, I guess you're doing your job the, because that is fucking evidence, dude. The judge did agree with Spees and barred that evidence. Now the entire case relied only on the DNA found at the crime scene. DNA analyst Le- Lena Sauer since retired, stated that the DNA found on Michelle's clothing belonged to Jerry Burns and Jerry Burns only, and that the probability was 100 billion to one that it was from an unrelated individual. Spee's defense was based off of transfer DNA and sloppy police work. He argued that Jerry Burns was at the Westdale Mall in 1979, and he could have touched things, and then Michelle later on could have come by and just touched those same things. So getting that DNA on her. Burns also worked at a car dealership, so it's possible that he could have touched the car there and left his DNA. How long did that family have that car for? Because that is a very long time for his DNA just to be sitting around for Michelle to potentially touch it. It is a bullshit theory in this case. Mm -hmm. I will say that. He also argued, Spees argued, that the evidence was contaminated after three decades of just sitting in the evidence locker. Mm -hmm. The clothes were all bundled together and DNA transfer could have occurred there. The prosecutor, Nick Maybanks, faced a hard challenge. He had the eyes of the whole town and just generations before him just on him to solve this case. Not to solve the case, I'm sorry, to Proof. um, prove the case. They did have DNA, but trying to convince a jury that a man with no criminal background could commit a horrific and deeply personal attack like this was no easy task for me. Could have been made easier if they had that evidence from his computer because this motherfucker was looking into cannibalism and then... What, what, what did it say? The blonde and all yeah, fucking it was blonde, fucked up shit. Um, females assault, assault rape. rape. Oh my, it's fucked up shit. But it's stuff that the judge barred. So the judge knows best, I guess. Nick Baybanks fought against the touch DNA theory and even cited that Burns never touched that car in his time at the dealership, and that the only way the DNA could be on Michelle's dress is if Jerry was the attacker. While Jerry was in prison awaiting trial, he became friends with a fellow inmate named Michael Allison. Michael asked Jerry directly, did you do this? Jerry's response, I cannot talk about it. During one of their card games, Michael kept winning and Jerry's response, if he would continue this, he would have to take him to the mall. Oh, this guy has no remorse. Now, this could have been a poor joke, but the comment disturbed Michael so much that he went on to go testify. This fellow inmate was like, this guy is fucked up. Michael will also go to tell the court that Jerry told him that, quote, no matter what happens in this case, that he wins because he had the opportunity to be out there with his family all these years, end quote. He has no remorse. He's basically just admitting it. After eight days of testimony, where everyone in Michelle's life was called back into the court, Mike, Michelle's ex-boyfriend, would go on to say, quoting, For a lot of us, it brought it all back into focus in a way it hadn't been in focus since those early, early days, end quote. In the closing arguments, prosecutor Nick Maybank states, There was no chance of outside contamination on this dress. We know how it happened, and we know who did it. And Spee's closing argument states, The state scenario here is that Jerry Burns, a married man with two young children at home, leaves, drives to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, in the middle of the night, leaving his wife and children behind, armed with a knife, armed with rubber gloves, goes to Westdale Mall on the chance that he's going to encounter Michelle Martinko, decides to kill her, and then he leaves and drives back home, splattered with blood, presumably with a knife wound in his hand. That's the scenario the government wants you to believe. The jury would go on to deliberate, but within hours they come back to find Jerry Burns guilty. Oh, thank God. I thought this was going to be a case where he got off. Jerry Burns was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Fucking die in there. Janelle and John just break down as they realize they finally got justice for their Michelle. Their only wish 
was that Albert and Janet were here to see that day. I wish Albert and Janet were with Michelle. On the other hand, Jennifer, Jerry's daughter, doesn't believe the verdict. She feels as if the jury did not even review the case properly and that her father, the kind man she had known her whole life, was not capable of this. Now, you might be wondering what the motive was. Why did Jerry do this? In 1979, Jerry Burns would have been 25. He would have been a father to two kids. He was selling farm equipment and on his local bowling league. Seemingly normal by all accounts. He was at the mall that day, but as far as why did he decide to take Michelle's life in a violent manner, that is something Jerry has never disclosed. I mean, with the stuff that he was searching up, he probably had some, like, he had some deep-seated dark shit going on inside of him. And maybe one day he was just like, I want to go kill somebody. And he just happened to see Michelle. It, You know, in that closing argument from his lawyer, the lawyer was like... And he just saw Michelle and just like, why would he? Because there are random, you know, acts of violence against people that were never intended to be victims. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. That could have been his fucking motive that he was a fucked up man. But that is just all speculation. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly why he, he did, did what he did. He's never disclosed it. Mm-hmm. Now, for Matt Denlinger, helping bring Michelle's case to a close is a big relief. And for his father, Harvey Denlinger, the original cop on the Martinko case, he's proud as heck for finishing what he started. For Michelle's family, they got the justice that they needed in the end. For the Cedar Rapids community that was stripped of his innocence, they got the closure they needed. But this case has left its mark. To this day, Kurt Thomas, the last person to see Michelle, feels guilty about not walking her to the car. And how maybe that would have changed everything. Tracy Price, Michelle's friend, still wonders where life would have led her had she been allowed to live it. Jane Hansen says, quote, If you read about Jerry Burns' life, he got to do all the stuff Michelle never got to do. She never got to finish her education. She didn't get to have a career. She didn't get married or have children or make decisions not to. She didn't get to live her life. She was just starting out, just starting to blossom as a young adult. End quote. For Michelle and all the other Michelles of the world, we can only hope that there is justice out there. I know that, you know, they had that blood evidence and all of that stuff. To me, I feel like he did it. But the thing is, like, again, I mean, it's he's all, convicted. So it's he con- it's all fucking speculation, I guess, because you don't have the motive, you know. But we can, we can speculate about the motive, he's but in prison. So he's he's still in prison. Yeah. Is he still alive? I think he's still alive. He's in prison. He tried a after his um, uh, sentencing, he tried a lot of appeals and then they never went through mm-hmm. because there was nothing judicially wrong. There was no judicial mm-hmm. wrongdoing. There was no constitutional vi- um, violation of his rights. Mm-hmm. Um, everything was by the books, according mm-hmm. to the judges. I am so happy that this is one of those cases that ended in an arrest and a conviction because there's so many cases that don't end in that. But Michelle got justice, and, and Janelle and matters. John get to now have this big sigh of relief. And the town, too. But sadly, Michelle will never be with them. Michelle will never get to do any of these things. And she, like Jane said, she would never blossom. I'm just hoping that she gets to be at peace with her mom and her dad. I agree. And that was our story for today. Thank you for listening. As always, follow us on Instagram, email us. Please stay safe, you guys. We love you, and we'll catch you next week, guys. Bye. Bye.